0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation nineteen. Revelation nineteen. We're going to be looking at verses one through ten. Revelation nineteen. I think most of us probably. I think most of us probably do this. Um, you're probably most energetic about cleaning your house or your apartment when you have company coming over, right? It seems like that's the case for most of us. I know, like you know, we. we Jen keeps an orderly house. And it's not because she's the woman and women have to do it men don't. It's it's because I'm lazy and she's hardworking. So Jen keeps the house very orderly. But nevertheless, it's when people are coming over for a visit that it's like, we got to get going, get this house cleaned up. Because people are coming and they're going to see. If family's coming in from out of town, you start cleaning up. If you have to host Thanksgiving like we do, you start cleaning up deep clean. All that stuff is really important because somebody's going to see right? And then you have the one room where you put everything in that no one's allowed in when they're visiting because it's your, it's your shame room. And then you tell like your little kids, like, don't let your friend go in that room. The door's shut. Don't open it. And then they go in there and then they find out anyways, right? We prepare for our guests by cleaning house, right? That's one of the ways that we, we do that. And I was wondering why it is. Like, why, why do we care? Because if they're your friends and family, like, them, you know, unless they're really awful, judgy people, uh, then you shouldn't hang out with them anyways. But, if they're, but unless they are that, why would you care? If they just they know you, they're just going to be like, yeah, man, whatever. My house is messy. It's not, what's the, who cares? And I think, I think the, the best reason why we, would, we want to clean up is because we actually want to warmly welcome them into our home, right? Make it comfortable for them. We want to bless them so we, we clean up for, for their benefit. And then the other reason is because of shame. Right, we we are embarrassed because our house is not in order. Perhaps right, or you know, there's uh, you know there's f- fly guts on the window where you just you just smack them and you don't you don't clean it off. the guests are coming over; you got to clean that off, otherwise you look redneck. And we don't want to look any any red. We don't want people to know how redneck we are. Is basically how I think about it. So there's shame, right? There's some shame and embarrassment. And while I'm reading Revelation, I, we keep coming up into this this reality that Jesus is returning, that there is a great visitation, right? Uh, Not temporal in nature, but eternal. Christ is coming back. It's an essential part of our faith. This is highlighted in the book of Revelation, though it runs throughout all of Scripture. It's highlighted and repeated again and again. Jesus is coming back. And with that, we are told that we must prepare for it. We must be ready or else we may be ashamed. So here's what I want us to see in chapter 19. One simple principle, right? Easy to remember. You won't forget it. And that is that the return of Jesus calls for our preparation. And I'd actually like you to remember it like this. The return of Jesus calls for my preparation. Remember it that way. The return of Jesus Christ calls for my preparation preparation. So the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ, the parousia, right? That's what the scholars like to call it. Um, This is something that we see predominantly in the New Testament. And until the revelation of Jesus Christ, it was simply called the day of the Lord. And it is still called the day of the Lord in the New Testament as well. But it's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, that there is a great day of judgment, the final day, the day, the great and awesome day, the day of final judgment, when God delivers his people and damns the wicked. That's the great day. And we've been reading about this. I mean, just for one example in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verse 31. Listen to this and keep revelation in mind if you've been with us, because it sounds like Revelation. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Sounds just like Revelation. Apocalyptic. Devastating. Right? The day. So the day of the Lord, we see it again and again throughout the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. But then, as more revelation continues, as the revelation of God progresses and unfolds and we get more information, we see that, oh, that's the day that Jesus returns. That's the return of Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. And then this gets a lot of play in the New Testament. Let me just read one passage for you. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus himself begins to unpack this promise of a return, a second coming. And when you get to the book of Revelation... The book of Revelation is essentially a collection of visions that is encouraging Christians to persevere through tribulation, right? To, um, to prepare for Christ's second coming. That's what we see throughout the book. I mean, the theme of the book of Revelation, right? We keep saying it every week. It's the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and the world. That's the promise given to the church who is called to persevere and to prepare. And we get to chapter 19, and that is the focus. So I'm gonna, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you, based on this chapter, three ways in which we can prepare for the second coming. All right? I'll tell you what they are now. One is to develop and express gratitude. Express gratitude. Number two is to maintain hope. Express gratitude, maintain hope. And three is to practice godliness, to practice godliness. All right, so number one, preparing for the second coming is done by developing and expressing gratitude. Look at verses one through five. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great." Here in the vision, it's after the great day of the Lord and judgment has finally come. Now judgment for the people of God is good because it means deliverance from evil, from wickedness, from oppression, from the devil himself. And this is what they've seen, even the great prostitute, right? Babylon, the ungodly city driven by satanic power that persecutes the church and seeks to move people away from God and the gospel. She's been overthrown and condemned. She's burned up. Her smoke is going up to the heavens. And they are rejoicing. The people of God are rejoicing. Angelic beings are rejoicing. There is praise for God's judgment. And this praise is the result of a keen and personal understanding of salvation, of deliverance. I mean, we see what it says early on in verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We have experienced salvation. We have seen his glory. We have experienced his power. And we are grateful. Gratitude births praise. Praise our God. All you his servants, all you who fear him. Small and great. You have gratitude Is a driving force in the Christian life. The saints who see and experience the salvation of God are moved to praise and worship. So we get to this issue of gratitude and we ask ourselves, hopefully, we ask ourselves, am I grateful? Am I actually characterized by thankfulness and gratitude? Because it's an easy thing to lose, it evaporates quickly. You've got to actually maintain it. You have to work to maintain gratitude. You know what it's like. You give your kid an awesome present if you've got a kid or you give your favorite niece uh, a present, right? And what do you get? You give it, this happens with adults too. You give them this present that they really wanted, didn't think they were going to get and they get it, what do they do? They throw their arms around your neck. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You get like a hundred thank yous. They're holding on tight. They're so grateful. Are they that grateful two days from then? They're they're probably still grateful, but they're not that grateful. They're not going to see, the next time they see you, they're not going to throw their hands around you and, and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. The gratitude wanes. A month from then, they're probably not even thinking about it anymore. And that's understandable, of course. We're talking about a worldly thing, a gift that's different. But the grace of God that saves us is eternal, it's everlasting. It has to do with who we are. It's not a worldly gift that we can. Take and then throw away. Uh, am I grateful for what God has done? I mean, you'll know if you're grateful because praise and thanksgiving will be on your lips. Because gratitude is expressed, it's not just felt. Like thanksgiving is offered, it's not just thought. The trick here is to remember and to marvel to remember God's works of salvation, his mighty works, to remember who he is, his revelation, his promises. Remember those things. We read those things, but we have to also marvel. We can read and not marvel. Marveling comes when you realize like, this is for me. Marveling at God's word comes when you read it and you don't just read it as a book to interpret or a passage to study, or something to journal. But when you read it as, oh, I know that this is God's word and it is God's word living and active for me right now. If you have faith and you know his promises are for you, you marvel. And if you marvel, you will be filled with gratitude. If you are going to persevere through this world and prepare yourself for the, the return of Christ, then yeah. You better express gratitude and develop it, maintain it. Secondly, to prepare for Christ's second coming, we need to maintain hope. Look at verses six and seven. Then I heard, vision continues, right? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We maintain hope. Hope looks forward. Gratitude looks back. Right? Gratitude remembers. Gratitude says, oh, I acknowledge, I see, and I savor all these things that you have done for me. Thank you, Lord. This is a beautiful gift, and hope is looking forward to the promises of God yet to be fulfilled. We we maintain both. We develop and express this gratitude while maintaining hope. There's a passage that's going to run parallel throughout what we're looking at here today. It's a good one to kind of dog ear if you do that sort of a thing. Uh, put a bookmark in it. Mark it in your, your notes on your phone. But it's, it's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You can just listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, past, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, future, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. you got to maintain hope. Now, we're looking forward, right? We're looking forward to this great day, this glorious day, the return of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, it is a marriage. And then later on in verse 9, it's, it's called a marriage feast, a marriage supper. And this is supposed to be an enticement for us to maintain our hope. We look forward to what in the vision they're experiencing now. It's finally arrived, they're all rejoicing. We look ahead to this. Now to get there, we need to understand that the the singing and the celebration of this marriage is predicated on the idea that Jesus marries the church. Right, that the church is the bride of Christ that Christ is the groomsman or the the husband. And we see this uh, quite a bit. It's, it's, it's hinted at, whispered in the Old Testament. We see it more clearly in the New Testament. Ephesians 5 is one of those really clear examples where we see that there is a depiction of, of Christ and the church being married, right? And, and husbands are, are exhorted to love their wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her that he might present her spotless and blameless, right? And so we get this picture, maybe just to give you one passage that's very explicit. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse two. Paul says, for the Corinthians for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So you, you get the idea, right? Like Paul helped to plant this church and he says, you know, you are the betrothed to Christ. There is this marriage, like he is the, the husband and, it, and he's like, I love it. I'm so excited. I'm so happy for what has happened here. This is the picture, right? The depiction, the spiritual relationship between Christ and the church. It's like a marriage, right? It's a betrothal. And to make sense of that, to give you like the betrothal idea, let me just explain it like this. Betrothal and engagements are sort of similar, but not very much, right? An engagement, you can get engaged, you can break it off, you know, like people get over it, people move on. It can be devastating, I know, but, uh, but you're not married, but the betrothal for the Jews in particular was uh, like a contract, and it was very significant, and to undo that was like getting a divorce. And so the process would be, Jack and Jill want to get married, they're really excited, their parents are liking, liking this relationship, and so they enter into a betrothal. Now, this is a period of time in which the dowry is agreed upon, and the dowry is the financial gift, it can be property as well, that the bride's family gives to the groom so that they, when they come together to, start to be married, they can start their new life together and start their own family. So, there's a betrothal, there's a dowry, and then, later on, oftentimes late, late at night, it's time for the wedding and the groom comes to the bride's house and he brings the wedding party with him and there's, there's, uh, light like torches there's, there's singing there's celebration and they come and he gets his bride and then they all go to the new house like where they're going to live and that's, that's where they have a marriage supper a marriage celebration a marriage party it is the beginning of the new life and that's what the church is celebrating in Revelation 19 the bride and the groom are finally together in their new home the old life is gone, and this is new. So we look forward to this. And faith does this, right? Faith looks back, but it also looks forward. We look back at what we have received, and then we look ahead. Like 1 Peter 1.3 says that we are born again to a living hope. Right? So we, we look ahead. We don't just look back. We look back for what Christ has done for us, redeeming us from the curse of the law by his sacrifice, and we look ahead. Why this look ahead? Why is that, why is that wedding, that, that wedding feast, why is that future, why is Christ's second coming so important to us, something worth preparing for? It's because that's when we finally experience forever peace. We, we, we get, Jesus gives us peace, right? He says, hey, peace I give you, but you're going to have trouble in this world. You're not going to escape the trouble, the affliction, the disappointments, discouragements, the pain, the suffering, the betrayal. So I'm gonna give you peace, but you're gonna have trouble. That's when we have forever peace, complete peace, peace in our own minds and hearts, peace, peace in the land. It's when we have forever liberty, forever joy, forever fellowship, forever communion with God. No more interruptions, no more mistakes, no more failures, no more sin. This is our hope. We're preparing for that. We're waiting for that. And this hope, this biblical hope is not, it's not wishing. Right? We're, not, we're not wishing that this would happen, like, oh, you know, I, I, I wish Iron Maiden would play in Chicago this year, and then uh, then we could all go and see. I'd go by myself, probably. No, no, Dave would come with me. Uh, I, it's, it's like, I, that's like, ah, that would be nice, but it's probably not going to happen. We wish, and that's how we talk about, we use that word hope like that. Oh, I hope, hope nothing bad happens. Like, we don't really know. Biblical hope is not wishing, it's assured anticipation of the promises of God it's we know what's going to happen because God has told us so it's longing not wishing it's longing for what we know to be certain and this is the essence of faith faith is not a leap into the unknown it's not a leap into the dark faith is a leap into the light of God's revelation and trusting it to be sure footing that's what it is Many of you know the passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1. 1, we have this explanation of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To be prepared for what's to come, to persevere through this world and to prepare ourselves for Christ's second coming, we need to maintain hope. And number three, finally, we must practice godliness. If we're going to persevere, if we're going to prepare ourselves, then the practice of godliness is essential. So let's just back up to verse 7 here for a second. Let us rejoice and exult. Like that's exulting is like jumping up and down external demonstrations of joy. So let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, preparation, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, "Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." Let me just stop there for a moment. As an aside, we've got people that are invited to the marriage supper. Well, who's invited to that? We we have the bride, and then we have people who are invited. And some people try to parse this out and make it two different groups, Jew and Gentile, for example, which is, I think, a wrong way to look at this. This metaphor, this symbolism is a bit fluid here, right? Because in in, in many passages in the New Testament and here, we know like, oh, well, the bride is the church, the people of God. But in other places, we see also like here, oh, well, the invited who are welcome to come are the people of God, the people who believe, So there's a sense in which, yes, Jesus is inviting you. Come join the bride. If you're not a part of it, come join the bridal party. And in, in another sense, he's saying, listen, my people are my bride. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It, somehow John got it twisted in his head in the midst of this vision, this crazy, overwhelming, apocalyptic vision where everybody's worshiping and there's an angel there talking to him. I mean, it's gotta be, you know, we think of angels as just like, like guys with abs and no shirts on with like wings. Like that's, that's how they're painted, right? It's a dude with abs and he's got long hair typically and they look like 80s metal Hair metal guys, that's what they look like in most, most depictions that I've seen. Um, but angels are oftentimes depicted as terrifying uh, in that they are so otherworldly and bizarre. They're depicted that way, even in the book of Revelation. So whatever the angel looks like, he, he gets it twisted and falls down to worship in front of this being that is more exalted than he is. And the angel's like, hold up, that, listen, I'm a creature like you. We worship God, we worship the creator. So John's corrected here. In this moment, what I want us to focus on is what's said in verse 8 it was granted her to clothe herself in her preparation for the marriage with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, the beauty of the bride is found in her preparation to present herself to her husband, right? She puts on the beautiful gown. And here, we're told that this gown, that this thing that we are clothed in that makes us beautiful in a sense, is righteousness. How are we clothed in righteousness? This is important to the vision. It's important to the scripture, Old and New Testaments. There are two ways in which we are clothed in righteousness. And both are important. Number one, the person who believes in Christ is clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are all sinners. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing to offer that comes from ourselves. And the moment that we believe we are forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our unrighteousness, and we receive as a gift the merits of Christ, his righteousness becomes our righteousness so that we have the ability to stand before God. One passage that spells this out is Philippians chapter 3. Paul here is talking about that day that Christ returns again, he says, I want to be, verse 9, Philippians 3, 9, found in him, that's I want to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from my obedience to the law, because he's already learned that his obedience doesn't cover his sin, and his obedience is never perfect. So he says, I don't want a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. your standing before God, what makes you acceptable to God, what makes you forever at peace with God is not your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. We tend to talk mostly about, oh, I'm forgiven of my sins, and that's the great gift, and that's true. But it's equally true that you also have received the righteousness of Christ. You are now suitable for fellowship with God. But there's a second way in which we are clothed in righteousness, the kind that we're talking about here. And clearly, this is a different kind of righteousness than this imputed righteousness that we receive from Christ. Because here we're told, oh, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, when we say that we are clothed in this kind of righteousness, it just means that this is what adorns us. What adorns us, what what makes us pleasing in this life. What makes us look like the people we're supposed to be are the righteous deeds that God calls us to do because this now puts us in conformity with his will, which makes us look more like Christ. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children... Abide in him, Jesus. Abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, in the context of waiting, preparing ourselves, of not being ashamed, we walk in righteousness. We do what is good. We practice godliness. Godliness. And this is a gift itself because look, we don't even get to brag on it because look at what said, verse eight, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. Even our good works is God's work in us. Jesus is coming back. That's a part of our faith. It's an essential part of our faith. You're really not even, you're not an orthodox Christian if you don't believe Jesus is coming back. You're something else. That's just not, that's not my opinion. That's just the way that it is. That's the Christian faith. It's like taking Jesus out of Christianity. But a lot of us are living like he ain't coming back. A lot of us live as if that's not a part of our faith. And if we live like that, you know what it means. If we live as if Jesus isn't coming back, it, it usually means we're living as if this world is all there is that this is as good as it's ever gonna get. That the things that we have to live for can be found right here, the things that we can see and taste and touch. And I know, I know, none of you are gonna be like, I totally believe Jesus is coming back. But then you do what I do, but not in my lifetime, and make it irrelevant. Jesus is coming back, oh, he's definitely coming back. But there are certain things that have to happen, you know, and my assessment is probably not for another 2,000 years. You know, when we think this way, like, oh, Jesus is coming back, and I know it can happen soon, but there are some things that have to happen, so probably not in my lifetime. I mean, what's our lifetime compared to the last 2,000 years? It's been 2,000 years? We think like, oh, well, it's, you know, probably another, another bit. We're just giving ourselves a path to treat this important doctrine, this critical promise, as irrelevant. It then has no bearing on us. It gives us an escape, but instead we're told to set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we really believe this, we've got to prepare for it because even if you die, we are held accountable for how we live in this life. We express gratitude, we develop it gratitude. We maintain hope by looking forward. We, we practice godliness. These are three of the ways we prepare ourselves if we think Jesus is worth it. Right? Like we, we clean up. We clean up the house. Somebody's coming over. If Jesus is in important if we value him then wouldn't you prepare yourself to meet him to the Christians to everyone here who follows Jesus I just want to encourage you to maintain gratitude remember and dwell upon God's mercies to you in Jesus maintain hope by looking forward and knowing the promises of God and they're for you and recognize that godliness must be practiced, but even that is God's work in you. So look to Christ in all of this. But secondly, to the non-Christians and to those Christians that I just talked to, the point here is not clean up your life. Jesus is not telling you to clean up your life. You need to clean up your life. That is an important thing to do. Don't don't spend your days in sin and misery. But what Jesus is fundamentally saying is, come to me for cleansing. Come to me for healing. Come to me for restoration. Come to me and I will give you rest. And it's from that place of rest and redemption that we can then express gratitude for the grace we've received. It's from that place of rest and redemption that we can maintain hope from the promises that God has given to us. And it's from that place of rest and redemption where we learn to practice godliness and glorify God by walking in His ways. Jesus is coming back. We should be excited to prepare ourselves to meet Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for Your Word and we pray that the time that we've had today to pray it, to sing it, and to to read it, Lord, to to think on it, that that would bear the fruit of growing faith in each of us. And we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would come to know what so many of us have come to know, that we are all the same. Sinners worthy of your condemnation, but loved by you, chosen by you, and redeemed, set apart, for your glory and promise a future that is perfect and without end. In Jesus' name. Amen.